0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Beineman and today for Jerome McDonald. Now, we all love a good vacation when we can get it, even more when it's somewhere nice and hot, maybe Chiang Mai or Bali. But before you take that selfie while riding an elephant, consider the thousands of captive animals that are subjects of the National Geographic's June edition that exposes animal cruelty practices in the Southeast Asia tourism industry And that edition is called The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. With us to discuss Nat Geo's how-to guide on how vacationers can humanely observe exotic animals is writer Natasha Daly. Her own investigation for National Geographic is called Suffering Unseen, The Dark Truth Behind Wildlife Tourism. And for her story, Natasha spent three months in the field on four continents with photographer Kirsten Luce. Natasha, well done and welcome to Worldview.
1: Hi, Steve. Nice Thank you for having me.
0: So this is a really in-depth, really in-depth um, issue and really gets to the heart of um, what it means when we're having a good time and how to be more thoughtful and mindful. And, but you start your uh, report, Natasha, with a story about a baby elephant named Mina. Can you tell us about Mina?
1: Yeah, so, um, I found Mina in, uh, in Chiang Mai, Thailand at a, at a fairly typical traditional elephant camp. Um, what happens at, Camps like the one I, I found her at is that you know elephants perform tricks and shows. They give rides to visitors. Um, Mina was a young elephant. She was four years old, and I first noticed her performing um, in a in a show, and she was painting a, a picture actually. And what I noticed was her trainer um, was standing next to her with a nail in his hand and pressing his nail into her flesh. Mm. It was meant to be hidden, um, but but what this does, as I found out later, is it it guides um, elephants' trunks as as they paint this picture. So uh, this this um this obviously caught my eye and I wanted to sort of find out more about Mina. Uh, and so after the show, I went back to, to see where where she was kept and I noticed that she was kept on a chain in a stall, which is fairly typical. That's how the majority of captive elephants in the industry are kept. But on the chain around her ankle, she actually had uh, spikes on the inside uh, pressing into her ankle's flesh, and she couldn't put her foot down um, without obvious discomfort. And so this was very alarming to me. It's the first time I had seen this sort of th- these spikes around an elephant's leg. And I, I asked her trainer, you know, well, why is she on these spikes? And he told me that um, she, she likes to kick and she's naughty, and this teaches her not to so this was the first time I sort of witnessed um, reality within an industry that is so popular as tourists but most tourists would not have noticed this so this is the first time I sort of witnessed um, the deception that can run through the industry um, and you know you know really upsetting unfortunate practices that unfortunately take place all over the world.
0: Now, wildlife tourism isn't something new, but it, um, according to your report, it's seen a bit of an explosion of late, and it's really hot on social media. Can you talk about that, Natasha?
1: Yeah. So like you say, it is nothing new. Uh, So people have have long gone on vacation and ridden elephants or pose next to tigers, for example. But what really is new is that social media factor. So what social media has done is sort of of really blow up the visibility of this industry. Um, So for example, you might go on vacation and you might post a photo of yourself on top of an elephant to your Instagram feed. And then what happens is that your friends and family are all instantly able to see that and they may want to go and do it themselves. So it ultimately serves this is viral advertising for sure. these experiences, which is making them more popular than ever before.
0: And not only that, but it's a, a way to document your trip so you can post your story and follow along. And so um, it, it, it really, it's sort of like a performance art to Absolutely. And the animals yeah. are the ones who are most forgotten. So uh, share some uh, with us some um, other locales and animal abuse uh, stories that Nat Geo has been keeping an eye on.
1: Right. So uh, for this story, um, like you said in the introduction, uh, photographer Kirsten Kirsten Luce and I went to four continents, uh, six countries in total. We went to the Amazon rainforest there. We saw um, animals like sloths and caimans and anacondas being pulled out of the jungle and kept in captivity for tourists to interact with. Um, We also went to Russia where we looked at at performing bears and marine mammals that were actually kept in traveling aquariums that would move from city to city and set up in a inflatable pool in a parking lot for these animals to perform in. And then we spent um, a month in Thailand looking into elephants, as I just talked about, as well as um, a hugely popular industry with with tiger getting up close to tigers and um, for selfies.
0: Natasha Daly is a writer for National Geographic whose 2019 June edition is called The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. Daly authored one of the stories for that edition titled Suffering Unseen, The Dark Truth Behind Wildlife Tourism. And in a few minutes on WBEZ 91.5, we'll take a trip down memory lane for a new play that remembers Lincoln Park and Lakeview's Latinx roots. So stay tuned for that. So, um, Natasha, uh, when you... Obviously, these are heart-wrenching stories, and we've heard these stories before uh, as far as circus animals and, you know, Ringley Brothers went out of business, and there's there's been a big push, and you've seen results in that regard. But also, there's a slight twist where you have ethical tourism and ecotourism where people feel like or believe that they are um, doing the right thing or they're seeing these animals in their natural habitats. And But there can also be uh, a little exploitation and there are dangers involved there as well. And you have to be careful, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. So yeah, people, as you say, are becoming increasingly aware that there are issues um, in some aspects of, of this industry. And you know what that means is that people have, really increasingly been seeking more ethical experiences and when it comes elephants are a great example um many people especially in the west actually um according to to camp owners that we spoke to um have been seeking more kind of observational experiences where they they can watch elephants you know kind of roaming in fields and engaging in their natural behaviors um but i have a friend who
0: went swimming with dolphins
1: Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, it, I mean, in the wild, you can swim with dolphins, which maybe seems more ethical than in captivity. Um, but the reality that we found when we were looking into this more closely is that uh, the industry is very aware that this this sort of tide is turning in some ways. And because this is all such an entrepreneurial um, endeavor, many businesses have, have tr- sort of tried to transform to keep up. Um, and a great example of of kind of Maybe what the average person doesn't know is, you know, when we were in Thailand, we actually um, mm. came across a facility called Elephant Eco Valley where elephants were able to roam sort of in a, in a nice pasture. People couldn't actually get close to them and interact with them. They were just able to sort of observe them and, and kind of make them food and, and feed them. Um, mm. But what we did, what people did didn't realize is that right next door was a traditional elephant camp actually the same elephant camp where mina was Uh um and what people didn't know is that the elephants are actually brought back and forth between the two experiences so someone seeking that ethical experience may not realize that you know the day before that elephant was performing in a show next door so this is just an example of yes the industry is aware and they're starting to change but there are so many issues involved um That people just
0: don't realize. So obviously, so many of these tourists, the ones who can afford to have these experiences come from Western countries, um, from developed economies. And so um, what can you tell us about what governments like the United States or the UK or France or Germany, if they are doing anything to sort of put the pressure on these countries to have more um, ethical practices?
1: Yeah, um, one of the, the biggest challenges in this whole landscape is that All of these practices I have just described are completely legal. Um, You know, tiger petting, for instance, is legal in Thailand, but it's also legal in the United States. Uh, So these are experiences you don't have to go across the world to to get close to a baby tiger and cuddle it. You could do that right here at home. Um, So, yes, these things are largely legal. And that is part of the problem is that there aren't any laws necessarily being broken. And so, um, yes, it, it absolutely will come down to. Potentially legislation starting to shift and laws starting to go into place, but the reality is that this is such a money-driven industry, and um, as long as there is money to be made within this industry, Thailand is a great example. It's a massive part of the economy um, of the tourist economy, and so there's little incentive to, to change things, um, unfortunately. And this is what this is what we found.
0: So Natasha, this edition is both heartbreaking and beautiful and gorgeous. Um, just uh the photography is excellent. The stories, I highly recommend reading this edition. So, um, how should a person utilize this edition of, Net, of NetGeo? And um, what are some of the things they can expect on the uh, online digital presentation and such?
1: Yeah. So in writing this story, uh, Kirsten, the photographer and I, our main objective was simply to um, lift back the curtain and make people aware that these realities exist behind the scenes of these kind of once in a lifetime experiences. So that was the goal is to really sort of, first of all, raise awareness um, by writing this story. And secondly, um, the whole industry is so driven by consumer demand that people our readers and citizens and, you know, anyone who may come across this story is really at the heart of actually the middle of it and people have the power to really make change here. And so your individual decisions, and this is what's so important for, for, to us, for people to know, is that your individual decisions really do matter and can make a difference because once and if people start to kind of demand different sorts of experiences, for example, something more observational, the experiences themselves will change. So that's just so important to remember that you have the power to to change this industry if it's something that upsets you.
0: And we should also keep in mind that there's human exploitation as well, as far as um, low paid uh, workers, or even in some cases, child labor I've read about. And so that's another aspect we have to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Natasha Daly is a writer for National Geographic. And the 2019 June edition of National Geographic is called The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. And that edition will tell you about the right questions to ask and how to be a more ethical tourist as you go abroad and have these wildlife experiences. She authored a story with um, uh, photographer Kirsten Luce that's called Suffering Unseen, The Dark Truth Behind Wildlife Tourism. Thank you so much. This was fascinating and very informative.
1: Thank you for having me, Steve.
0: The next story coming up is really going to be a favorite of mine, having been born and raised in Chicago. And you longtime Chicagoans are in for a treat. Stay tuned. WBEZ on 91.5 FM, because next Worldview's Monica Ng will help us weave through stories about forgotten Chicago for a play you can catch this month. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 FM. This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum and in today for Jerome McDonald. In the musical play La Havana, Madrid, playwright Sandra Delgado tells the stories of Cuban, Puerto Rican and Colombian immigrants during 20th mid-century Chicago. After sold-out runs a few years ago at the Goodman and Steppenwolf, the hit show returns to the Den Theater in Wicker Park. Worldview's food, health, and culture correspondent Monica Eng recently sat down at the Den Theater with Delgado and fellow actor Michael Kendo to talk about Chicago's largely lost Latinx history in Lakeview and Lincoln Park.
2: Thanks, Steve. After seeing La Havana Madrid a few weeks ago, I was both delighted and stunned by all the Northside Latino history that it revealed for the first time to this Northside Latina. My Puerto Rican grandmother was a big music and dance lover, and she probably frequented this famous Caribbean nightclub at Belmont and Sheffield called La Havana, Madrid. And it's right around the corner from my current home. So how did I not know about this place? And how did Delgado learn about it? That was my first question to the playwright and actress.
3: So I thought I was going to write a play about my parents. Uh, My parents came from Colombia in 1965 and they got married in a very unusual way by proxy, meaning that on their wedding day, my mom was in a church in Medellín and my dad was in a church in Chicago. And they got married at the same time, but two other people. <laughs> and so I was asking my father about his early days in Chicago and he mentioned this nightclub that they used to go to, La Habana Madrid, and I asked him where it was and he said Belmont and Sheffield and my mind just kind of exploded because I grew up just a few blocks west of that and in my memory That neighborhood never really had a a Latinx identity. So I immediately was like, what is this place? And also, this would be such an amazing setting for a play. I immediately could see, you know, the lights and the music and the colors. And so I set about trying to discover what this place was and come up with an immersive experience for people.
2: And in the process, you found all sorts of real people and they told you their stories and you created monologues?
3: Yeah. So immediately I Googled La Habana Madrid and you really can't find anything online. There's really no documentation about the club. And so, you know, I went to the library and I thought, you know, maybe I'll start with the music because I know for sure there was a thriving music scene in Chicago in the 60s. So I thought maybe someone had written something about it. And so I found a book that was called literally something like Chicago Music of the 1960s. And I was like, oh, I'm going to find some leads here. And then I can start asking people, hey, do you know this person? And in this book of, you know, 200 some pages, there was not one Latino musician. And that's when the project kind of shifted for me, because at first I thought, oh, it's a club. It's going to be fun. And that's when I was like, we have been erased, really. You know, the book was full of black musicians and white musicians, and that was it. You know, honestly, Facebook was so helpful because I reached out to people and said, hey, I'm, you know, writing this project. Do you know anyone or do you know someone who might know someone? And then slowly people would start giving me names. Like, that's how I met uh Carlos Flores, it was a friend of a friend who was like, you should talk to this guy because he's been around for a while. And when we first started talking, I didn't think he was going to be a character. But over the course of, you know, over a year and a half of correspondence, it was so apparent to me that his story had to be a part of it.
2: My grandmother came here in the late 30s from Puerto Rico, and she lived first in Hubble Park, then in uh, Uptown, and I imagine she must have gone to the club. She's gone now, so I don't know. So why did you choose to focus on, let's say, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and Colombians?
3: So when my parents came here, that area was super Cuban and super Puerto Rican, I think they felt very much at home in that community. The music is very similar. The food is very similar. I think there was just something comfortable as opposed to, say, settling in, like, Pilsen or Little Village. Really, from North Avenue to Devon in the 50s and 60s, it was super Caribbean Latinx. You know, a lot of Cubans, a lot of Puerto Ricans. You can still see little, little traces of it, like um, La Unica, La Unica is this, originally a Cuban grocery store. My dad worked at a factory just up the street. We're
2: talking about in an Andersonville.
3: Yes, and they would also carry Colombian products. So that's where he would go to get like all the Colombian stuff.
2: <laughs> and Mike, tell me uh, your family's ethnic background and what period yeah. you grew up at Halston and Roscoe. And when did you first hear about the show?
4: Yeah, sure. So I am Puerto Rican and uh, I was born in 1966. And I left that neighborhood in 1989. So I was there for a long time, yeah. And uh, when I found out that this show even existed, one of the things that attracted me to it was I grew up on Halstead and Roscoe. I was born at Illinois Masonic Hospital, our family went to Mont Carmel Church, and I just started being drawn to the idea, and I had heard through the circuit that this was happening. I never imagined that I would end up as a character who not only I knew, but was a friend of my dad's. You know, in the play we talk about when the gay community first came to Lakeview, I was at 3406 North Halstead, and uh, I remember that there was this other group of people that people spoke about, but...
2: We're talking about where Roscoe's oh, is right
4: Roscoe's. now. Yeah, Roscoe's is right there. Roscoe's used to be Varela's. Varela's was a Puerto Rican grocery store. Across the street was a Clark gas station. El Cubanacan was on Hosted and in, uh, in Cornelia. Uh, Nino's was uh, 3406 Hosted. I drove by the other day and Town Hall Liquors is still there. But you know, uh, La Community, you know, La Community was the target of our time. Um, Weebolts and Goldblatts and Jupiters and all those amazing places, Woolworths Woolworths and Ideals Candies. So it was just a a really wonderful uh, attraction that I had to it because I'm like, I remember. All of that. You know, in the play, we talk about having, you know, church service in the basement and not in the regular chapel. At Mount Carmel? Carmel, for the Latinos. And I remember being in the basement and thinking, when it was in the play, I'm like, yeah, I, I remember that. So my character, who was Tony Quintana, was kind of like, you know, the media mogul of that time at a very, <laughs> because that's how Puerto Ricans got their news back then. I mean, the guy had a newspaper, the guy was on radio, the guy was everywhere, and he was a trusted source of information. If he said it or if he was involved, there had to be some validity to it. So playing the part has been a lot of fun, but the lobby conversations after the show are awesome because people come up to me and they just continue the story. So I always joke around and I always say, there should be the lobby show now, because the lobby stories are amazing.
2: Tell me about some of these lobby stories. I know I wanted to stick around because I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And I think people are thirsty to talk about this area that has been really undercovered and maybe lost to history. Tell me about some of these stories.
4: I had the family of the young man who was killed on Division Street uh, during the riots in the 1960s in which a young man, Aracelis, was killed. The police shot him, and then that's what kind of sparked and intensified the riots. The family of that young man was at the show, in the lobby, and they were telling me the rest of the story, the smaller details of the story about they were on the roof, and they saw the, you know, I mean, just the continuation of the stories. And when we've had last night, somebody uh, after the show said to me, I'm a Pedro Pan child.
3: Explain what that is. So in the early 60s, Uh, 14,000 unaccompanied minors from Cuba came over to the United States uh, when Castro took over. And they were all told that it was only going to be about six months until things blew over and everything became normal again. And some of these children never saw their families again. So one of the characters in the play is a young Cuban woman, 13 years old, who comes over. And so
2: you had a Pedro Pan child, a Peter Pan child, who was in the lobby talking to you?
4: Yeah, last night, and, I, and he wanted to continue a conversation about it. There was a lot of people saying hi to and he really wanted to tell me his full experience. When I talk to young people about what this show is, I try to let them know that this is an opportunity to get a part of history. That it's not that we don't want to tell it, it's just that we overlooked it. We didn't go out of our way to really research it, so most people can't tell it. But here is an opportunity for you to know that there's this rich history in Lakeview. And to this day, when I tell people that I grew up in Lakeview, they're like, your parents must have been wealthy. I'm like, no, you have no idea that Lakeview was very, very, very different.
3: Here, we are all family. Here, we are all
2: one. You're listening to Worldview, and I'm Monica Eng here at the Den Theatre talking to playwright Sandra Delgado and actor Mike Okendo about the musical La Havana Madrid playing right here in Chicago through June 30th. Right, So, Sandra, tell me, with the Pedro Pan children, unaccompanied minors, the police shooting of uh, the black and brown community, do you feel like this is taking on resonance that you had no idea about at the time?
3: Yeah. I wrote the play between 2015 and 16. And the first production was in 2017. And we had a round of auditions before the election. And then we had a, another round after the election. And I remember, this was in late November, so the election had just happened, and it was one of the monologues, and I'm not remembering which one it was, but it was one of the first auditions of the day, and I heard my words for the first time since the election, and I got really teary, and the actress got really teary so much that she had to stop, and she sat down with our director, Sherilyn Bruce, just for us to like talk through stuff and calm down because it was so visceral you know it was just what was really happening and now two years later you know people have asked me you know have you changed the script and yes I've made like little little tiny tweaks here and there and Cheryl keeps fleshing out the world of the play but the times have done it all for us so it's a series of like six vignettes I would call them woven together with music all the stuff that we're talking about, like the separation of parents from their children, um, the violence against black and brown people, um, gentrification and displacement, um, the right to speak Spanish without being persecuted in some way, all these things, they've always been happening, but now they're on the news every day, so it's in the mainstream consciousness. So I just think the play now is reaching everyone in a much different way than it did even 2 years ago.
2: Yeah, and again, bringing up history that I as a 50-year-old Chicago-born fourth-generation woman had no idea about. How did I not know about the riots in the 60s in Humboldt Park? My daughter wants to do her history fair project on it now because she feels like nobody knows.
3: <gasps> that makes me so happy. I I really love seeing the younger generation here at the show. Um you know, one of my hopes with the show was that it could be a show that multiple generations of a family could enjoy together. I said, we should start a punch card because people are coming to the show three, four, five times. They'll come to the show, you know, someone our age will come and be like, I have to bring my kids you know, or I have to bring my parents. And so they come back again and again. So everyone knows the riots in 68 with the DNC, but the 66 riots, which lasted for days, you know, again, another act of erasure. I didn't know about those riots.
2: I don't feel so bad now.
3: No, because no one talks about them, because it was in Humboldt Park. Like, no one cared, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. the same exact thing as, like, not finding any Latino names in that book. You know, we haven't really been counted in the history of the city and something that really revealed itself to me in the writing of the play like I didn't set about really being like I'm gonna have a Cuban character you know the only thing I knew for sure was that I knew my parents had to be in there somewhere but I wasn't like there's gonna be three Puerto Rican characters and a Cuban it just naturally happened and as I got deeper into The history of Puerto Ricans in Chicago, as I got to meet more Puerto Ricans and hear their stories, it just became so obvious that the Puerto Rican experience in Chicago had to be a really big part of La Habana Madrid. Then the majority of the characters are Puerto Rican. And, you know, in my opinion that I think is shared with many is there's no other community that I can think of that really has been pushed around as much as the Puerto Rican community in Chicago. And it's still happening. I mean, like, they started at the lake and west and west and west. And now, like, even, like, Kelvin Park and Hermosa, which is, like, what, 4200 west, they're getting gentrified, too. I mean, it's just, like, where does it stop?
2: Mike, how did you feel about that depiction of, basically, your family's experience of having a Puerto Rican community in Lakeview and it getting pushed and pushed?
4: Yeah, I mean, we drove by the building. My sister and I had a doctor's appointment. We drove by the building that we lived at, 3406 Halstead. And we really got emotional. But then my sister said, there's a for sale sign on the building. This is two years ago. And uh, she looked it up. And it was $1.9 million um, <laughs> for this two flat. And, you know, my sister Lydia's is like, you know, our parents did not speak English well enough to defend the idea that we could one day own something that was worth that. We didn't know how to own it. There weren't opportunities for... Ownership the way they are today, right, or have been in the last 20 years. And so there's a sense of loss there for the family that way, right, because we lived at 3406 Halsted before I was born, 1907 North Sheffield, which was Lincoln Park. That was their first push. Their first push was go that way. So we got pushed out of Lincoln Park. Two years later, they end up on Halsted and Roscoe, which is where I was born. And then ultimately, we just had to leave. The neighborhood had already started that big. We always saw uh, the gay community that moved in right to where we were. We saw them as the saviors, um, because in a way, you know, nobody wanted them either. But they spoke the English and they had the skill set necessary to defend. They were very vocal. And we always felt that, wow, you know, like we're being protected by the gay community, which is kind of weird, right? Um, When we left uh, the neighborhood, it was a lot of people leaving. It wasn't one family left. You know, it was like nine families, eight families, six families, all leaving.
2: So this is full of moving stories and Chicago history, but it's also full of wonderful music. Did you know that it was going to be musical from the beginning?
3: Well, this is like the selfish performer in me. like I've always had a dream to sing with a salsa band. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, of course. I come... From a very musical family, I, I grew up singing and dancing Colombian folkloric music. That was actually my entry into performing. And then somewhere along the way, I ended up having this very long career as an actress in very, very dramatic stuff that like my kid can't see, you know, where I'm like killing myself <laughs> or going crazy or you know stuff like that. And so when I started writing about six years ago, I found that music just very naturally is part of my storytelling. A lot of the things that Mike's character says, Tony, about music really is the way I feel about music, about music meaning love. Music is a place where there's no class, no color, just love. Music really has saved me, you know. It gives me energy, it lifts me out of depressions, it makes me feel strong, and I'm a theater artist, but I really believe that music is the great connector. So I I have to always incorporate it in the things that I write.
2: There is so much wonderful music in the show. Can each of you tell me your favorite song in the show and why?
4: I would say mine would be sabor mi. as a family growing up one thing that was very common was we didn't have a lot but we had the basics to celebrate with and that was my mom's meal and then whatever was playing on the radio and the music and those songs that your mom repeats
3: Tanto tiempo disfrutamos de este amor
4: that you hear when she's doing dishes, that when you hear when she is, you know, just singing in a corner, whether she's sewing or something, they stay with you. And Sabor a Mi is that song. Tanto tiempo disfrutamos de este amor. All this time that we enjoy this love.
0: Bastaría con abrazarte y conversar Tanta vida yo te and Sandra,
3: your song? Oh wow. I mean it's I'd love singing all of them, but I think I I really love that Final song where the audience is all, they're they're beating their hands against their chest all in unison. And then the cast starts singing with with the sound of everyone, you know, thumping in the background. And it's a true moment of connection with everyone that I just really, really enjoy every night. The main line is, No dejen que te quiten tu historia. An historia in Spanish has a double meaning. It means history, but it also means story. And La Habana Madrid, the character that I play, she's like this kind of like mystical being that's brought all these people together in the space into being. And so she's saying, don't let them take away your story. You know, like, stay strong. How do people get tickets for Havana Madrid? So we are running through June 30th. Now we just extended one more week, and you can get your tickets at the Den Theater. That's theaterwithre.com. So playwright
2: and actress Sandra Delgado, and actor Michael Kendo. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank, thank you. you, Monica. Hi.
3: This is our story.
0: And when we come back on WBEZ 91.5, our friend Catalina Maria Johnson joins Jerome McDonald for a special Global Notes with the up-and-coming group Basil and the Supernaturals. So stay tuned. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 FM. Bye.
5: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, where we look at international music. And Catalina Maria Johnson is here, the host of Beat Latino and a culture writer. Great to see you again, Catalina.
6: Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. And we have a real treat
5: this week. Absolutely. One of my hometown heroes. (laughs) You guys are too kind. Great (laughs) to to see you. Great to see you, Basil Almadani. It's my favorite place. You guys
7: are my hometown heroes.
5: Well, your new album is coming out soon. It's called Smoke and Mirrors. It's going to be out in the fall. You've been dribbling out uh, singles, and we might as well hear one. Uh, Maybe we should do Stepping Back in Time, since we're in a more thoughtful political realm here. Uh, Tell us about Stepping Back in Time.
7: Yes, that's the second single off of the record, and it's definitely the most pointed. Really, it has... Two sort of angles to it. Stepping back in time, of course, where we're at right now politically and this unwinding of social progress that we've experienced since nine eleven, 11 and this platform that exists for fear and hate like we haven't seen in a long time. Um, but also – there is a fun element, you know, I like to think of my father, 1970s Aleppo, with like the disco flared out pants. Um, it's a celebration of our heritage in a lot of ways, too, just to shine a light around the refugee and immigrant experience, just to show that we're right here and we're just like anybody else. Let's hear Stepping Back in Time. Make the call and I'll let it ring. All these operators, can I take my name because I want to say. No, it's not okay, no The gate is up, but they closed the lane So you're sending them back to
5: the cage again Well, fuck your wall
7: Cause it pulls us apart yeah. Stand up, you gotta make a sound now We'll get down, I'm gonna make a you read, you're right Stand up, time to take a chance now Stand up, I hope that we get.
5: Stepping Back in Time by Basil and the Supernaturals. We have Basil Almadani here with us. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Your yeah. dance skills are also looking great. Thank true. you. I, I know. I know. And the radio listeners have been devoid of that their entire <laughs> their entire time of knowing.
6: <laughs> Jerome was rocking out in his chair. That's that's quite an accomplishment, Basil. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the scenes. Behind yeah. the scenes. So. Uh, Tell us more, just in case people don't know. I mean, that sounds like straight up Chicago in many ways to me, with like a little flair. But uh, tell us how Syria and your family and how all that happened, and you ended up in Chicago as a family, just kind of so people know the story of that.
7: Sure thing, yeah. Um, I was born and raised in the U.S., actually, in Northeast Ohio, between Akron and Cleveland, and a college town, Kent, Ohio, so Kent State University. Uh, I'm a first-generation Syrian American, so both of my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the late 70s from Aleppo. Uh, The whole goal, essentially, both of my parents grew up middle class in Aleppo and just wanted to create a better life for their families, and really one of the major catalysts was my father just figuring out what my grandma was doing to help make ends meet. She was working a second job and just hurting her back, hurting herself, and he just didn't want any... He didn't want that to happen, and he wanted to be part of the solution. So he would spend his summers memorizing textbooks and doing everything he possibly could to end up in a place where he could send some money back home and take care of his family. So he immigrated to the U.S. He started up a practice as an OBGYN in Northeast Ohio. And if you look at my Facebook profile photo, you probably noticed as soon as the travel ban first hit, I wanted to send a message of positivity. So I threw a sign together that said, my Syrian immigrant father has delivered over 3,000 American babies, to which uh, a lot of people responded. And I got a call from my father Uh, And I was excited to hear what he had to say. And he said, "Best of it was actually uh, over four thousand babies."
6: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Dad.
6: (laughs) Well, and on this new album, you have a song titled Aleppo. In fact, your parents' hometown, right? So, tell us a little bit more about that, and then we can hear it because I I hear it's got some special features.
7: Yes, I'm particularly excited about this song. We had the chance to feature a guest vocalist here at the end. Abdullah, And he is, an, is a phenomenal Arabic singer. Uh, what I like about this song, I mean, obviously when people hear about Aleppo in the U.S. today, it's just this immediate image of, of war, of, of sadness, of, of the many, many, many victims throughout the Civil War, of course. So this song is meant to to reframe the narrative into something positive, shining a light on the cultural history and the place that I remember visiting growing up. Uh, If we work to rebuild, if we have that tone, that's the first step is the way I like to think about it. Aleppo is the oldest continuously civilized city on the earth. It's been around for over 5,000 years. People have been living there. So this is shining a light on that cultural heritage and, and shining a light on what we work to rebuild every single day through this work.
5: That's Aleppo from Basil and the Supernaturals, and Basil Amadani is in the studio with us. You can see him at the Chop Shop on June 21st, and um, that's a great song and a great sentiment about Aleppo. I'm, I'm really glad you did it. Thanks
7: for listening.
6: Is this album—tell us a little bit more about it. Is it—a um, lot of the songs seem to have kind of a, a message, and I think your music always has, but there's like a, a, a definite focus for many of the songs— That comes through. Is that different, or is it always? Do you think uh, compare it to your work so far?
7: Yeah, there's definitely there's different layers to the messaging. Um, Obviously, you know there's there's a lot of commentary here on my cultural heritage as a Syrian American person. And there's just commentary about what we're experiencing right here at, in the U.S., because I think it's very important to personalize and humanize that experience, not just as a Syrian person, but one of brown descent and what I feel that people of color in general are experiencing right now in the U.S. is is extreme. Uh, one other message that we have, in particular on this record, that we're working to shine a light on, the album itself is called Smoke and Mirrors. And it's really a comment on just the mental health issues that exist within the music industry or really just the entertainment industry altogether. The levels of anxiety and depression that impact artists are as extreme as they ever have been and there's not really a platform anymore to, to openly talk about these things. It's looked down upon so artists tend to to conceal all of that within. And then a lot of times we wonder what could have been done differently. And we you know, we weren't aware of, of the different anxiety and depression that different artists were facing. So uh, I've been experiencing that a lot, of course, in recent years, having jumped headfirst into music, especially with the role of going into a lot of areas where they've never even met a Middle Eastern person and just having to be an ambassador for that. There's just a lot of baggage you know, a- attached to that experience. So this album has been an opportunity for me to to amplify that story as well.
6: And Basil, I'm curious, what drew you to this like smooth kind of R&B, funky soul? It's kind of like, seems like a very unusual take for, you know, someone with a Syrian background. It's just Mm -hmm. kind of fascinating.
7: I have been deeply attracted to the space and the colors that exist within this particular style of music. Um, Particularly when I moved to Chicago, I was deeply inspired by Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye and Al Green or Etta James. A lot of these incredible, timeless soul artists that were able to tell a story through their music. You know, it's, it, and it wasn't just about the lyrics, but it was about every you know every, the the tone, the expression, and their presentation on stage. Uh, particularly when I watched this this one documentary of Otis Redding, and I was expecting you know just stories of just major, major difficulties and strife. And, you know, everybody loved Otis Redding because of this, of, of his story and his ability to communicate through his through his art. And it was through the most racially tense time of, of our modern history. Um, that was incredibly inspiring to me, especially as the war unfolded in Syria and what my family's experiencing and just my duty to, to communicate that message through the music, to be able to tell a story through everything that we do and and for it to be from the soul. So less about writing soul music. I mean, our music crosses soul, funk, jazz, rock, you know, rap at times. There's a bit of everything embedded into it, but it's all has this groovy backbone, with, and it's so colorful, and it gives us this wave to ride on uh, all day, like a whole open canvas to paint within.
6: Wow. Well, speaking of that kind of canvas, there's black water, which has all of that, and yet has, again, this very powerful... Message. Tell us a little bit more about that.
7: Blackwater. Yeah, I could say it about every song. It's my favorite song, but <laughs> <laughs> this one was a really, really powerful song for me because um, Blackwater is about really. It's two stories. Uh, you know, in Aleppo, behind my grandmother's house, there was this park that always smelled. Uh, it had this whole stench, and it was because there was this river that was part of the park that never had any water in it. It was filled up with a bunch of garbage and muck. And the reason was Turkey actually cut off the water supply from Syria. It's called the Nahar Uygh. Um Turkey had cut off the water supply and it filled up with all this, this trash. Um, but eventually, you know, they reopened that water supply after relations kind of got better and the water supply was a little better. Uh, and the Tur- Turkey has da- great big dams all up and down the rivers and it controls the water. Yes, yes. And they eventually opened up that water supply and they built all these uh, park benches and they planted grass and all these walkways. And it was the pictures are gorgeous. And I never got to see it in person because as soon as it all came together, the war broke out. And I haven't been able to visit my family ever since. But I woke up with this powerful dream uh, one night where I was back in Aleppo I was in the park and the water was so high it actually overflowed it was into the roads and I had to get out of the car and get in a boat just to navigate and sail away uh, so that's the key part of the story and then the other part of it is just being from Northeast Ohio along the Cuyahoga River uh, which is infamously known for catching fire twice in the past so it's also a comments on just What our world is experiencing, and how water brings us together in some of these strange and dark ways.
5: Basil and the Supernaturals and the song Black Water, a very dark and personal song that you made into something really amazing.
7: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the hope is that it, it inspires hope as well. Uh, like I said, water brings us together in these strange ways, but it's meant to be this inspiration that, you know, thing, we do rebuild. Uh, and in times of loss, we have to find life as well.
6: Well, it's been great having you, and it's a spectacular album. We can look forward to it sometime late fall, right, we're thinking?
7: Yeah, the pre-order will go live, ideally in July, and we'll release it later this year. It's an undetermined date, but most likely in November.
6: So we're going out on another song. Does "Calculated Love" does this have a (laughs) what kind of story does "Calculated Love" have?
7: Yeah, (laughs) this is the perfect kickoff, really, to the album "Smoke and Mirrors," being about exactly that. You know, just uh, this this whole idea that we create this the fog and the and the and the mist and the lights around everything. Um, This is just about raw love. This is about hanging out, watching movies, eating pizza. Uh, like just that, that true raw experience of love with another human being. Uh, it's definitely contrasts that Hollywood, uh, you know over the top romance that we, that we experience. <laughs> so this is this is a fun one to go out on. It's the first single we put out and it's the first one on the album.
5: Well, congratulations, you sound great. I imagine people all over the country are reacting to you as you, as you do all this touring in the East West and that next in the East Coast and, and they're finding out about you and that's great. Yeah, no, we're excited to be out there. Thank you so much for having me today. Basil al is the featured man in Basel and the Supernaturals. Their album is Smoke and Mirrors. You can see him at the Chop Shop on June 21st and on Navy Pier on August 17th and all over the East Coast uh, the rest of the summer, it <laughs> seems like. And congratulations on the record and the great sound and, and all the smart thinking you're doing. That's
7: my pleasure. Thank you so much. Tell you about the first time but I didn't realize just got its way to unfold Since then, I didn't
0: never... Four legendary African Americans changed America for the better because of their religious faith. Tomorrow on worldview we'll talk with the author who chronicled their stories. So come back to 91.5 wbez tomorrow at noon for more worldview. Worldview is produced by Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5 FM.
5: Oh, we both can agree oh,
7: no I am